EMS One Academy is the leading way in high-quality, affordable training for EMTs and paramedics nationwide. Your department can take advantage of more than 150 full-length training courses and 225 hours of EMS continuing education in a robust learning management system. Training is accredited by the Commission on Accreditation of Pre-Hospital Continuing Education. Administrative features include group administration, credential management, custom course creation, assignments, offline training tracking, and more, all customized to meet the needs of the EMS training officers. To schedule a free demo, go to ems1academy.com. beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor, and welcome to another exciting episode of Inside EMS. I'm Chris, he's Kelly, and we're excited to bring you another great episode. Kelly, come on in here and let's go ahead and catch up on the EMS World Tour. You've been all over this great United States, spreading the word of EMS, so uh, how are things going? It's, it's good, man. Well, since you gave the Mr. Rogers opening, I, I guess I need to sweat, uh, switch into my loafers and my cardigan, right? I mean, I think there were slippers. Were they weren't they slippers or was I? I think there were slippers and yeah. a cardigan. Yeah, and I didn't get that uh, whole slipper thing. That you know, coming home and getting into the slippers and the cardigan made me a little bit uneasy. I mean, who's really doing that? Mister <laughs> Rogers was was pretty pretty staid. Uh, if it was if it was in Kelly's neighborhood, it would be shoes off, clothes off. <laughs> That's right, Cheetos, beanbag chair, and Shanner box. That's right, baby. Yeah, man, I'm just uh, I'm just coming back from. Um, the uh, Connecticut EMS Expo and uh, had a great time there. They uh, they are putting on a quality EMS conference and the attendance this year was better than ever and and uh, had a had a good show there. Um, I enjoyed the heck out of myself. Yeah, and you've been up there a few times now, and I got to tell you, the Mohegan Sun is one of those. Uh, it was really kind of one of the uh, first outside of uh, Atlantic City casinos that were put up, and uh, it really is a beautiful property. It's swanky. It's it really is nice. Now, of course, you know, you go there, you got to budget three times what you normally spend on food because uh, the food choices are so are so good. I I can't uh, I can't resist what the uh, uh, some of those restaurants. So spending one hundred and fifty bucks a person on food every day is <laughs> or more. Wow! Holy <laughs> moly! So I think we got a really great show, Kelly. I, I'm going to kick it to you, let you introduce it, and uh, let's get to talking about it. Yeah, we uh, got an email from a listener asking our opinion on a news article that comes out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Medic, the EMS agency that covers Mecklenburg County, uh, has instituted a, a t- pilot program that delays paramedic response for three minutes for certain low-risk, low-acuity calls where they uh, have a, a good chance of being canceled. The deputy director of Medic, uh, John Studnick, Uh, said that as the department's call volume is growing, they're figuring out ways to cut out calls that really aren't life or death incidents. Uh, And and it's all about, you know, preserving system resources and and keeping those, uh, keeping those units available for actual calls where they might be needed. And our our listener wanted to know our opinion on the deal. Basically, Medic looked into 30,000 canceled calls in their system. They found six low acuity calls that are, that are, have a uh, high incidence of cancellation before, uh, EMS arrival, and those are traffic accidents, assaults, overdoses and ingestions, poisonings, and psych suicides, uh, sick person, and unknown man down uh, dispatch determinants. And uh, 
In those cases, they're having the 911 dispatcher hold an ambulance for three minutes before it's sent out to allow the police and fire department first response to arrive on scene and determine uh, if uh, EMS transport is needed. And our, our listener wanted to know what our opinion on that deal was. So I'll, I have an opinion, obviously, but uh, as an EMS you, manager, you have an opinion. What don't you have an EMS opinion manager, on? I'm gonna kick it to you since I since I introduced the story. Oh. I want to hear your take on it. What do you think as far as preserving system resources and risk management? Um, do you think this is a good idea? You know, I think initially, I mean, my answer is going to be, I think it's, I think it's an idea that that warrants the research as we move forward on this. So, if you look at thirty thousand calls and you make the determination, I mean, thirty thousand calls, you know, in a system, it is a lot. I mean, so it's not like you're looking at a week's worth of work, you know, or even when you look at, you know, doing a demand analysis and you go back twenty weeks to kind of see some historical data. When you talk about thirty thousand calls, man, that's you know almost that's almost a third of your year. Uh, of, uh, you know, trying to figure out what's going on uh, within call volume of a specific uh, set of uh, patients. So with that said, I do think that if you have found some trends that could be uh, savings of of, uh, resources, holding on to a call for a little bit longer than being dispatched, I don't know where I see the challenge with that. Now, of course, you brought up the the comment from an EMS leadership standpoint of risk management. I would think that as you're doing something like this, you need to really be able to make sure that you're minimizing that risk as much as possible. What I mean by that is what are we going to put in place as safeguards that if we need to uh, uh, make a different response plan, if we say that, you know what, we've noticed over the past week that we're really falling behind these and we're getting our tail caught between our legs, maybe we add this, uh, we take this determinant out, we move it back into the regular response. So I would think that this is something that if you're going to play with, and if you're going to, uh, um, you know, try to, to try to trend to see if it makes a difference, I don't know that I have heartburn with it as long as the right parameters were in place to make sure that we were answering the calls of those patients that needed us when they called. Yeah, you know, and, and they're being backstopped by Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department and Charlotte Fire Department. And both of those have medical responders on staff who, who are capable of doing a medical assessment. Um, uh uh, I don't know to what degree the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department is is trained. Hopefully, they're better than your your typical uh, law enforcement first response, where they their version of the ABCs is ambulance be coming, man. Just hang on a minute, ambulance be coming. Uh, but um, as a provider and and having having worked these kind of calls myself, uh, those uh, those calls are are also uh, really high percentage cancellations in our system as well. You can. There is one determinant that that really increases the chance of a cancellation, and that's third-party callers uh, of those particular types of emergencies. And I, I wish, really wish, that is something that that my employer would do is is screen somehow third-party callers a little better. Uh, I don't know how that's possible. Um, and we're also, you know, we're we're also at the mercy of the nine one one dispatch center as well. Uh, but. All of those, where it's a car accident, uh, virtually all of my refusals, for example, are car accidents uh, and assaults uh, called in by a third-party caller. 
uh, and no one wanted an ambulance. Now, to my mind, that should not even warrant a refusal. That should that should be no patient found clear from scene because no one self-identified as a patient on the scene. Nonetheless, uh, our, our company policy is to, if you arrive on scene before you are canceled, you are to make patient contact and obtain a refusal. Right. Um, but... Uh, those those instances where no one wanted an ambulance, uh, no one was injured, uh, those should be canceled and turned around. Um, and, right. and almost invariably, they're third-party callers. So I, I don't see uh, uh, any any increased risk in, in setting up a, a triage system whereby uh, third-party callers to those particular types of accidents, unknown man down, assaults, and... and uh, and uh, minor car accidents with the the drive-by 911 call um, should be just uh, screened, and, and let's wait till police get on scene and determine if we're needed. Uh, that that takes out a lot of system load. Let me tell you. Well, I got a, I got a couple things that I want to touch base on. First thing, I want to get back to the first responders, your your fire engine, and your mm-hmm. police department. So remind me to come back to that. The, the thing that I want to educate people on before we go forward is a difference in, in a party caller. So a first party caller is that I'm actually the person who's requesting EMS. I'm the one that's on the phone. I'm not feeling well. Come and take care of me. A second party caller would be somebody who's in the room with me who is, uh, my friend is here. He's not breathing very well. Please hurry up. Please send an ambulance right away. A third party caller is somebody who's not even with the patient. So, Kelly, you and I right now are recording in different places. You know, you're coming straight out of Pitkin. Uh, I'm coming to you from uh, world-famous Texas. And you uh, say to me, you know what, Chris, I, I think I'm having some chest pain, and I, I, just don't, uh, I, I just don't feel well. And then you're not there anymore. Kelly, Kelly, are you okay? Um, and you don't respond to me. And I pick up the phone, and I call the 911 a dispatcher to say, you need to get over to my friend Kelly's house. I don't think he's doing very well. That's a third party call. So when we think about, you know, how calls are coming into dispatch, you know, I really like how you say we've got to think about those third party calls, but we have been bitten in the butt when it comes to those third party calls, when we've thought that they were nothing, come to find out that they were actually, uh, uh, you know, something uh, that worked out, you know. There was a, an incident at my home uh, many years ago. My son was on the phone with his girlfriend, and it was like the middle of the night, one or two in the morning. I'm in bed sleeping, and he's on the phone with his girlfriend, and he hears somebody he thinks is coming in the house. So he says to his girlfriend, if you don't hear back from me in a few minutes, call the police. Well, he doesn't get back to her in a few minutes for whatever <laughs> irresponsible, immature thing he decides to do. And all of a sudden, the police show up at my house. Well, you know, those are things that I think we have to be able to, one, think about. Is that a legitimate call that needs uh, to be addressed? Two, is it just, you know, craziness? But you did talk about, in this conversation, we're talking about the medic system in Charlotte. And again, a very professional uh, EMS system. Mm -hmm. They come with a lot of uh, uh, tradition. Uh, They're one of the premier EMS systems, in my opinion, in the United States. I was just in Charlotte for the Special Operations uh, Medicine uh, Conference, and, you know, I I had the opportunity to talk to some of those folks that were working, and, you know, they were very, very, uh, you know, uh, very, very high on the system. Now, I don't know the system model. I don't know if it's a third city service, meaning is it just like police, fire, and a third city service of EMS? 
Is it a contracted service? But I don't know that. But one of the things that you said, Kelly, that I thought was really interesting was that there is support between the police and the fire department. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that we have in a lot of EMS systems is being a private company as you work for uh, or being a hospital-based system that I worked for, what's the relationship with the first responder agencies? And I think that we have, yeah, and I think that we have to remember that our first responder partners, the, the fire department, they're usually on scene within four minutes. So think about it in this reality. I'm dispatched to a call as the ambulance provider. You're dispatched to a call as the fire provider. You have a four-minute response time. I have an eight-minute response time, which means I'm getting on scene four minutes after you. So now, if I'm holding the call for three minutes, which is giving the first responder time to get on scene to say, you know what, we don't need an ambulance, is there really risk and liability in that scenario? It, it is going to vary greatly with the capabilities and, and the interoperability between the public safety agencies in a given system, uh, police and fire. Uh, I know that in my system, um, fire often beats us to to calls in rural areas uh, because they, they page out the rural volunteer fire departments and, and they're often on those wrecks and, and high acuity calls where or we rely on to to stabilize a critical patient. Uh, they're often there before we are because we're uh, they're closer to the patient. Um, but in the city, uh, we we will beat the fire department every time. Um, we we just stage more units uh, and and can respond better within the city limits. So we'll typically beat the fire department there. Um, and, and there also is the variable that just how well trained is the fire department. Uh, or the police department, for that matter. We got some police departments, and, and if your experience with police officers has been anything like mine, um, quite often their their medical assessment skills are, shall we say, lacking. <laughs> um, and uh, they they will call the ambulance uh, for unknown for unnecessary reasons, even when a patient has specifically said they don't want an ambulance because they think liability-wise they need to call somebody out there. Uh, that's a problem in our system. It's been a problem in just about every system I've been in, uh, where the police call the ambulance or, or, or don't cancel us, uh, because they don't want the responsibility of, of, uh, of, uh, refusing medical care or, uh, or canceling medical care. Um, and, and I've heard from plenty of EMTs and paramedics that really don't trust, uh, fire department EMS, uh, particularly if they're BLS trained personnel. Uh, not fire department EMS, but fire department first response, if they're BLS trained personnel to cancel a paramedic. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I I can see their point. Um, Why don't you agree with that? I I think that a a competently trained EMT should be able to tell whether a person is a patient or not. Yeah, Yeah. but wait a minute. We had this conversation a couple weeks ago where you were saying you don't feel that there's competently trained EMTs to make some of these determinations. There's not competently well, trained that, paramedics, that is, so you can't. You, you my, can't. That is why I prefaced my statement with variability and uh, between systems, and it's going to depend on the system. If you're in a system where you have fire department uh, BLS first response that is you feel is adequately trained uh, and they're reliable, by all means, rely on. If they're not, then it's on you to to continue to respond to the scene and be help your, your fellow agency get trained up to the level where they are reliable. Um, that if that's a system flaw, that's a, a flaw that you have to address. Um, but be that as it may, you know, part of this is, is this whole deal is, is all about managing public expectations. 
You and I know, anybody who has been in EMS more than five minutes knows that about 70% of the patients that we transport to the hospital don't need to be in a hospital and don't need an ambulance to get there. Um, but that's the expectation. Um, heck, if we actually cut our, our call volume down to people who are actually acutely ill and needed an ambulance to get to the hospital, we could probably do, do with half the personnel or a third the personnel we have right now. I don't think that's a reasonable goal because I don't think we're, we've, for at least two generations now, we've conditioned the public to call for everything. Plus, in America, we, we you know, uh, as far as our health care goes, we don't think we should ever feel sick or be in pain or be inconvenienced in any way. So we're, we're really high utilizers of medical care in the first place. But um, Medic is, it looks like they're doing this right. You know, they've, they've announced it as a pilot program. They are, um, they are uh, looking at these calls, see if they can uh, manage these expectations a little better. And I think that was part of the reason there's a news story about it, uh, is that that's their way of floating uh, the fact that, hey, there's a whole lot of these calls that you're calling for that, that aren't necessary. And we're trying to keep our, our ambulances available for the, the truly ill people. Yeah. Uh, they, they quote a citizen in there that, that is kind of skeptical who says, well, I, you know, I don't know if that's a, a good idea, but I trust their system. And that being, that, that being the key phrase, I trust their system. That's, they know and that speaks doing. volumes right there. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I like it, but I trust in what they're doing as a, as an organization and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, exactly. when we, when we talk about public trust, Kelly, and, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but when we talk yeah. about public trust, that's public trust. If, yeah. And if you can, if you can say, if you've got your numbers to back you up and say, look, we looked at 30,000 calls in our system that were X percentage of them, let's say 75% of these 30,000 calls were um, cancellations. And of the remaining 25%, none of these patients were high acuity and needed to go to a hospital lights and sirens. Therefore, the, the delay in response did not affect their care. That would that's a pretty compelling argument. Um, and and once you've made that argument and you've proved that, OK, we can keep our our ambulances uh, available for higher acuity calls and and lower our response time for the higher acuity calls because you're keeping those ambulances available, then you you shifted the public's expectation. The paradigm has shifted a little bit. And, you know, five years down the road, maybe you shifted a little bit more. Uh, to something that, that is actually based on reality rather than, um, oh, my God, send an ambulance for everything. Uh, we, we've conditioned people to, to call for an ambulance for the tr most trivial thing. And, and uh, a high degree of over triage is built into the system because we don't want to be responsible for that one in a thousand call, or that one in a million call where someone is really, truly ill and they were triaged lower than they should have been and, and a bad outcome results from it. And it, happens, it happens all the time, though. And it, it happens yeah, all the time, yeah. and it will happen in this case. I mean, yeah, so it, we, it we can't... It happen all the time. And, it, and, and the <laughs> same will happen of, of uh, uh, MedStar's uh, system with Uber and Lyft and AMR system of Uber and Lyft. You're going to get some leakers that should have gone by ambulance. It'll go by one of those alternative transport uh, mechanisms. But the thing is, is that's a hell of a way to run a railroad. You can't design a system based on one or two or three or four percent of your of your uh, potential calls. Um, you, you've got to do the best you can for the most people you can. Um, and 
we were learning uh, in recent years that this this massive over triage and in, in, in the unrealistic goal of, of getting of never missing an acute call, uh, that's just not workable. And, and that's a system that can't continue to function. Uh, eventually, it's going to collapse under its own weight. So um, we're back to managing expectations. You got to understand that, uh, make the public understand that we're going to be available for the other 95% of the calls, but we're going to have a bad outcome now and then because we're, we're trying to, uh, be more discriminatory about how we're, uh, uh, about how we're dispatching these ambulances. Well, you got to paint it that it's a good thing, even, even if, uh, you miss a few now and then. Yeah. So I guess we could say we both agree on this and, you know, we wish the folks in, uh, you know, uh, Charlotte, the, the best of luck. I'd really like to chat and maybe one of those, uh, yeah. one of those leaders in that system to kind of talk about, you know, I think from the standpoint, you know, when we talk about from a provider side, Kelly, from a, from an yeah. EMS leader side, you know, what was the, you know, cause it's, you said it, it seems like they're doing it right. You know, they announced it. It was, there was a news article, you know, they talked to some of the you know, the people, I would like to know what it went into the planning of this. So when you talk about 30,000 calls, I'm sure this wasn't a, a week's worth of preparation. So I'd really be interested to know what was the planning. I'd really yeah. want to want to know how did they get the workforce involved in something like this? I'd want to know, are they having any challenges up until this point? Because I think that what they're doing is, is they could be setting a standard for other EMS systems to follow. And I think that this oh, yeah. is something that we should pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, I would I would love for someone uh, from Medic who has some some inside knowledge of how their their pilot program is set up to uh, to shoot us an email or give us a call and and we'd love to have them on the show, um, you know and and as I was saying before this is all about decreasing system workload and increasing the the availability of ambulances for for higher acuity calls. There are more than one approach to to that sort of situation. I know in in our system. Um, we, we put up, uh, four quick response vehicles, um, because we have a, a great deal of industrial construction, uh, in our area and, uh, the, it's really booming population and, and, uh, population density wise, plus the traffic situation is becoming unmanageable. Uh, and as a result, we've got a, a great deal of, uh, our response times are, are, uh, increased uh, substantially in some parts of our, our uh, response area. Plus, we got one particular hospital who uh, uh, moves at the pace of a geriatric sloth on quaaludes, uh, so it's not uncommon to have three or four ambulances stacked up there on the wall uh, for 45 minutes to an hour. Um, the hospital situation is is uh, something we can't uh, fix ourselves, but. The quick response vehicle programs really reduced our response times uh, a good deal. We, we send these guys out. And basically, they're sprint trucks, and their job is to render stabilizing care and, most importantly, to stop the dispatch clock. Uh, they don't do paperwork. Um, they, uh, they obtain refusals occasionally uh, on those calls that they happen to be dispatched to, but mainly their job is, is to, uh, to uh, be able to say that we had a trained paramedic on scene assisting and, and rendering care um, and, and stop that dispatch clock. Uh, but they, they take a lot of workload off the transport units. Uh, they, they truly do. Um, that's another way to look at it. And, and it's a, a way to, uh, so are those to, patients um, that those response times without incurring the, the substantial cost of a full-time paramedic crew and a new ambulance and all that kind of stuff. You've got a, you know, a, a pickup truck with a, a cap on the bed or a, a suburban or something like that, lightly outfitted, uh, with a uh, supervisor level medic, 
who's uh, who's running those calls. So are those patients that may need to be transported, though? I mean, so when you talk about, you know, one of the things, and I'm, I'm interested to hear you say that they could stop the dispatch clock, because usually you can't mm-hmm. stop a dispatch clock in, until you have a responding unit, or I'm sorry, a transporting unit, but... Uh, I certainly do understand, and this is kind of what we're talking about, is being, you know, creative in this new environment that we're going to be in. And when you were talking about this, uh, as you were as you were describing this, I, w- I kept thinking community paramedics, community paramedics. Mm-hmm. But in this in this scenario that you're talking about, um, do a lot of these patients that these uh, sprint vehicles respond to are they being transported anyway, uh, eventually, or are they being uh, disposed of by these folks? Oh yeah, they're 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 being they're being treated uh, treated and transported. Um, it, it's rare that they'll do a catch and release. Um, we we uh, we don't have bill dance paramedics uh, uh, on those QRVs. They they respond, uh, render stabilizing care, uh, and then the transport unit arrives and and uh, takes handoff and, and takes patients to the hospital. Interesting. So quite often we'll get there and the the patient will have. You know, an IV and and an EKG done, and their aspirin, their nitro, or or maybe a med pushed or whatever, uh, depending on what our response time was. But the generally all of the on scene care that we would normally be providing before we load the patient up and put them in the in the ambulance, all that is 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 quite often being done by our, our medics on our QRVs. So uh, <clears throat> it, it's really not delaying um, uh, delaying their care uh, at all. In, in fact, it's speeding it up because quite sure. often, if if a if a QRV medic has been there and, and we arrive on scene, it's literally, "Hey, man, how you doing here? Here's paperwork. Put the patient on the stretcher and go." Yeah, because yeah. how long are you going to be in the house anyway, doing your stabilizing care before you decide to kick off anyway? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, you that, know what I mean. Ten to fifteen minute scene time uh, is cut way down. Uh, when there's already a, uh, a quick response medic on scene. So that, that's one way that we've decreased the system workload uh, and, and been able to meet our response time standards by implementing that program. And it's caught, it's, I'm not going to say it's cost effective because there's personnel and vehicle costs, but it's certainly more cost effective than putting up a another transport. With resource system. management, you mean. So one of the things that I would like to know is that the people who are out there listening to the show, if you're doing some type of, uh, you know, as Kelly mentioned, this uh, you know these uh, quick responding vehicles, or if your system's doing something, you know, like Medic is doing, go ahead and shoot us an email. Let's go ahead and start talking about some of these programs because I think that one of the things that we're doing now is as we're kind of bringing the spotlight to this, we really need to help our our, our EMS uh, career field kind of look at some of these best practices to see if these are what the future of what we're going to be, uh, uh, you know, responding to. But I got to tell you, I really enjoyed talking about this. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I wish them luck out there in uh, Charlotte, and I hope it all works out for everyone. Yeah, and and you guys have heard what Chris and I think. We definitely want to hear what you think. Um, uh, The old saying applies, you know, if you you want something new, you can't keep doing the same old things. And and if your current system isn't working, you got to think of new ways uh, to, uh, to handle your business. So drop us an email at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.